What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and the opinions expressed are those of your host and our guest. Today, we sit down with Fire Chief Carlos Avilas. He shares with us some of his time in the Army, talks to us a little bit about PTSD and some of the issues that he experienced and how he drove through those things and now is finding himself as a Fire Chief and the things that he is doing in that position to take care of the men and women, his organization, and the state of Florida. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy. Chief Carlos Avalos, thank you so much for sitting down and, and, and rapping with us this morning. I want to get in and and talk about um, your journey in the fire service, and I really want to talk about some of the stuff that you're doing uh, with the state firefighters and, and the the outreach you did to the, the younger group of firefighters. I think that's a very cool topic, and I want to touch on that. But I also okay. want to talk about your time in the Army and um, how that has shaped who you are as a fire chief and, and some of that stuff. So... I don't, I've got so many things I want to talk about. I don't really know where exactly we should begin. Uh, so maybe we start with, uh, we'll start from the beginning. Where's the okay. beginning for I'm you? Where's excited. the beginning I, for you? The beginning for me? Oh boy, I don't even know how far back I should go. Um, so, uh, you know, right now I'm the fire chief for the city of St. Augustine. Best job I've ever had in my life. It's awesome. Uh, and, uh, but my journey started uh, really back in 2003. So I, or 2001, I joined the military uh, in my senior year of high school, graduated, did delayed entry, um, wanted to stay close to home. So I did the reserves, was going to go to school. And then uh, 2000, you know, uh, shortly after 9-11 happened, and it became very apparent to me that uh, I was going to end up seeing different parts of the world. And so that uh, that really started my journey so so, so reserve, I Iraq. Uh, reserve turned into yep. full-time pretty quickly so, I mean, sort of yes um yep that's about the best way to look at it so i went to basic training ait uh, as a military police officer that was my preferred mos mm. um a lot of regrets about that but everything in life you know there's, <laughs> wait a, hold on there's a we gotta we gotta yeah, unpack that we gotta unpack that yeah. chief so a little uh, a little are you regretting that you went in the army and not the marine corps uh, yes. So I will tell you, <laughs> right, truth be told, I actually did four years of ROTC in high school with a, with a Marine Corps ROTC unit. Oh, interesting. Uh, and okay. loved it. I mean, I, I know more about Marine Corps history than I know about Army history. and But I love the Marine Corps' culture. I, at the time, I just felt like there would be more opportunity for me in the Army. Um you know, in hindsight, I should have, I should have just joined the Marine Corps probably would have been a much better experience for me, but I have tons of respect for the Marine Corps. I more regret the whole military police route. Oh, is that but, right? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I thought I wanted to do law enforcement. That was mm, always my, mm-hmm. that's what I thought I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, got out of high school, got into college, uh, to do criminal justice. And that was always my track. So then 2003 rolls around, we end up getting ready to mobilize to go into Iraq. So we were part of that like initial invasion team into Iraq. Mm. And um, we did, I think, 16 months on that first deployment. And lo and behold, the people that I seemed to clash with the most on that deployment were all guys that were cops on the outside. And so that deployment was a great defining moment for me because I knew when I came home, this is 
law enforcement is not the field for me. Interesting. Uh, you know, but I had a bit of a rough homecoming. We lost a friend of ours at the end of that deployment. Mm. And I came home and just, I spiraled. Like, I mean, in the worst way imaginable, uh, one of the lowest moments of my life. And I had a friend of mine that was, he called me one day, was on the deployment with me and tells me that he's going to go to fire school. And, you know, at the time I was sitting there thinking, well, if you could do it, I could do it. And uh, he was going to do it in St. Augustine. I was living in Orlando at the time. It's about two hours away. And I packed my stuff up, came up here, checked out the academy, looked at everything. And I thought instantly thought to myself, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I love it. This is great. And I drove back home to Orlando. Uh, I was working for my dad at the time. And I just, uh, I sat down with him. I said, Hey, I'm moving and I'm going to go to fire school. And he just kind of broke down and started crying Really, and was so grateful that I had found something to be excited about, that there was that spark in me. It gave me a sense of purpose, mm -hmm. uh, that sense of camaraderie. I felt like I was serving others, which is something I've always been really driven to do. And, uh, I needed the fire service to help get me out of the hole that I was in. Yeah. So what, what were you doing? Um, for I your, will start. What were you doing for your dad? I was turning wrenches. He owned like a car a dealership and a mechanic shop. So I was just doing a bunch of work for him. Yeah. But um, you were still but sitting. I was a terrible employee. I mean, I would have fired me. <laughs> I don't know why he put up with me for well, so long. He felt obligated. <laughs> I did. Kiddo. You know, and so I, I didn't, I didn't grapple with the loss. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, to be in a combat zone and then dropped back into the civilian world and expected to just pick up the pieces like nothing ever happened uh, was really difficult for me. So I, mean, I struggled with a lot of PTSD, anxiety, mm. massive amounts of anger issues um, and was just adrift, like completely rudderless. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't even know. I, it's just yeah. horrible. And I felt like. I just, I needed to be completely engrossed in something and felt like I had a, a purpose or a mission. Um, cause prior to that I was, man, I should just go back. So that's all I kept thinking. Like mm -hmm. I should just volunteer and go back and I could make a living out of being deployed overseas. Right. So, so how old are you at that point? No. Um, I mean, I was 18 when I was over there. I turned 19 in Iraq, almost turned 20. Oh, while I was yeah, over there, we yeah. were gone for so long. So I think I signed up for EMT school when I was 19 or 20. Um, and so I did EMT school first, then went through the fire academy. Then I had to start looking for work and I was very, very fortunate. So I'm at the tail end of the fire academy. There's a couple of weeks left. Um, the city of St. Augustine offers, you know, they state that they're, they're hiring and that in fact, then it was in the newspaper. Like, I don't feel old. I'm not. I'm 39. But like, to see an advertisement in the newspaper now feels <laughs> that's like old school. You can admit it. it you're old. old. You are old. Like, like is... how did you hear about the job opening in the newspaper? <laughs> that feels weird even saying it now. So, but, is, uh, but the, the application your... said you didn't have to be certified. Oh, interesting. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not certified, but I'm close. So, so is your see what this test is like? Is your guys's academy? Um, like a state run academy or, or something like that. So 
That's a great question because that's going to feed into some of the recruitment and retention stuff later. Mm. So in Florida, you know, you got to put yourself through school where in other parts of the, of the country, maybe a department hires you, takes a shot on you, and they put you through their own academy. Right. In Florida, it's a little bit different. You've got to put yourself through fire and EMT school, become credentialed by the state, and, and then you go out and seek employment. Oh, wow. Right. So it's a, it's a little bit of a different system than most. So I show up for this test for the city of St. Augustine. There's probably 80 to 100 people in this testing room. And the HR director is talking about, you know, we just had seven people up and leave to go to another department. We're a whole shift short. Um, we know the advertisement says that you don't have to be um, certified, but we're really looking for people who are certified. We, ex- we expect to extend some job offers here today. Oh, wow. And so it was a civil service and a physical exam. Um, so we do it. There's you know, two other guys that are in the standards class with me. Um, and so we do the test. I feel like it went really well. I go out, I do the physical test and I run into the chief as I'm wrapping up the physical tests. And he just looks at me and he goes, Hey, uh, what's your name? And I tell him and he says, uh, are you certified? I said, no, sir, I'm not, but you know, I'm in school. I've only got like three weeks to go or something like that. And, he goes, okay, well, you know, we need people that can start like right now. I said, no, I understand. So I don't think anything of it. Um, about a week goes by and uh, I get a call from the department and they're like, hey, so. You done yet? <laughs> yeah, you done yet? You got all your stuff? And I'm no, no, not yet, but I'm really close. They're like, okay, well, you know, we filled some of the positions, but we've heard a lot of good things about you. You know, we, they preach all the time that every day is a job interview at the Academy. And there were a couple of guys that were instructors out there that worked at the school that are, are seeing us on a daily basis. Right. And, um, I said, all right. So they invite me in for an interview. So I come in, I do the interview. I feel like it goes really well. I don't hear anything for a while. I get a phone call later, uh, like a week or two later, um, you know, Hey, do you have all your stuff yet? I'm like, I don't. Um, but my test is like on Friday. It was like the week of our final exam and I had everything else. And so, you know, the chief at the time was like, look, we like you. Uh, there's a couple other people in your class that are kind of in the same boat. Um, pass your test and you got a job. Wow. No like, pressure oh though. God. No pressure. <laughs> I cram so hard nonstop and um, complete honesty. Like I finished that test and remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I passed I have no idea if I pass. Right. And then like days go by and that's when I haven't been working in eight months. I've been in school full time. So I go back to Orlando. I'm turning wrenches for my dad. It's been three weeks. I haven't heard anything. Chief's getting upset. He's calling, asking me if I've gotten my letter yet. I'm like, no, I don't have anything yet, sir. Uh, it, and so I'll never it forget go it. Does it go through like the, uh, like the state fire commission or something like that? Or Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Bureau of Fire Standards and Training. Okay. And so uh, so it's May. I'm in Orlando. I'm in a dirt field dropping a transmission for my dad, laying in the dirt, completely covered in grease. I've got mud on my back because I'm sweating through my shirt. <laughs> and the phone rings, and I, I see, you know, the 904 area code. I'm like, oh, man. So I pick it up, and it's it's Chief Owens, and he just goes, hey, I got sick and tired of waiting. I called the State Fire College. They didn't tell me what you got. They just said that you passed and you're credentialed. So can you be here tomorrow morning at seven? I was like, I will be there at six. 
That's and awesome. I, you know, I I left I left everything. I was like, sorry, Dad, gotta go. Threw everything I owned in a duffel bag, cleaned myself up, and and took off. Never did finish dropping that transmission. <laughs> um, and I have never looked back. I mean, I have enjoyed every single day of work uh, since then. Oh, that's awesome. What a, what an interesting, what a fascinating story. To me, that is so, uh, that to me, that is so different than how I've ever experienced it out here in my neck of the woods and uh, such a different model. It is. It's very different. I mean, and that's, you know, back then it was, it's hard. It was hard to get hired on somewhere and that was never lost on me. Like mm. it, one of my motivators is really never wanting to let people down. Like, it's one of my biggest fears. Mm. And I remember like you took a shot on me. Like I will reward that with, mm. you know, doing the best job that I can yeah. uh, in this environment. Well, so, so, and so I feel the same way about other people that have given me that opportunity before. No, that, I mean, that's, that's important, right? Is and you think about those, the, the relationships and the reputation and, the, you know, those folks who were watching you while you were in the academy and sending the information back, like your reputation begins, the, I think people seem to forget how small the system is that we all work in, right? Your reputation precedes you because people are watching and paying attention and uh, to every move you make. That and, is, you know, the fire service is so small. Yeah. You will make connections throughout your career. Uh, jokingly, I was helping at another agency with their search for a fire chief and I, I'm working with non-fire service people in this search. Mm -hmm. And I told them, I said, listen, you're going to learn a lot about the fire service in this process. Like, that's what I'm here to help you with. I said, but information control is going to be paramount. <laughs> I said, the three fastest forms of communication known to man, are telephone, <laughs> telegraph, and telefireman. I said, so just be prepared because everything that gets brought up in this meeting is likely to spread like wildfire. Um, so, but yes, the fire service is small and, and we do know of people everywhere. Right. Well, and I love the fact that, you know, that those folks who were at the training academy leveraged their position to tell their boss, hey, we've got some great candidates coming down the pipeline. And that put you on their radar, right on the chief's radar. Yep. You know, it's just a neat, you know, and then they took a chance on you and brought you on board. And you now it's wonderful. It's, and you know, it's a practice that I utilize today. We have quite a few guys that teach out at the academy and and we do they harp on that they tell everybody i wouldn't dare you know want to bring somebody into the organization without vetting them through them they're going to see them day in day out right uh long days for, for three or four months straight yeah. like I, I want their input what type of person were they in school right so so, so with that so our model out here on the west coast and and then lots of other places is well, you go through an interview process, you go through your, your physical abilities test, et cetera, and then we offer you a job, put you through the tower, through the training academy, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And um, and then we figure out what you really got going on. Do you feel right. like that the model you guys have is uh, prefer preferable to that? So I think it depends on the agency. I think you know one of the things that we have really talked about at length this year at a statewide level is that the, the model that Florida follows in reality has become an encumbrance or a barrier mm -hmm. to allowing people to enter the fire service. Mm -hmm. Now, there are departments within the state that have begun sponsoring people, so they're following your model. Uh, I see. Um, 
you know, for me as a personal note, I would be fine following that model. I think it would actually be better for us because our hiring practices are very different. And when we sit there and talk to our folks, it's a very clear understanding that our singular most important thing that we're looking for in the hiring process is character. Right. Right. That as an organization, we trust the internal system to develop these people into phenomenal firefighters, that we can't make them better people, that they need to come through our doors with that skill set and that we can build off of that and we can really mold them into the firefighters that we that we want. Yeah. And mold them into better people. One of the and things so I'd be fine with yeah. switching the models up in that regard. Yeah. Well the the thing that occurs to me that that I as I'm thinking through this that that I struggle with for me, the struggle is in the fact that in a 20, 30 minute interview, trying to, to suss out the true quality of someone's character, um, you know, through the stories they tell, through the questions, are we asking the right questions, um, et cetera. Like, I feel like that's, you know, so many times the candidates come in very well coached and they've been, you know, they've got family, friends, et cetera, uh, who are on the job, who have told them how to. I don't want to say game, but how to work their way through the process successfully. And, mm-hmm. um, and so do we truly understand the quality? Are we getting people who reflect the organizational values? Or are we getting people who reflect the values of those who've been coaching them? Yeah, that's, um, I, I think that that's a fair question to ask. Um, I can tell you I'm not dissatisfied with, with our hiring process. Yeah. Um, so I've had the privilege of, serving as chief now for almost seven years. And so I'm at the point now where like 53 or 54% of the organization has been hired under these new hiring practices, Mm -hmm. right? Just through attrition and folks leaving the fire service. And I'll tell you what I don't have. I don't have an issue with people abusing sick time. Mm -hmm. I don't worry about what my firefighters are doing outside of work. Um, I don't worry about what they're doing while they're on duty. Uh, you know, I can leave them unsupervised. I have no qualms about that. Like I, I trust them. They have earned that. And the amount of positive feedback I get from citizens or other people within the city when they interact with our firefighters is, is fantastic. I'm not reinventing the wheel right. uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Like I think Bruno really <laughs> paved the way and kind of set that standard for the fire service. I just think that we have deviated far away from that and that the mission has grown so much that we've allowed, you know, ourselves to drift away from that core principle of providing public service. Right. Mm. Well, Hey, I want to, we got into deep waters real fast, but I want to, I want to go back. I knew that was going to happen with you and me. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I want to go back though. So you just talked about being the fire chief for the last seven years, but we, we need to connect those dots from when you started um, and to becoming the fire chief. Have you had, did you have any deployments between then and, and, uh, I and, did. and now? Yep. 2014. So take, um, take us through the arc. So you came in, you got hired on. Um, yep. So came in, got hired on, um, got really aggressive in taking classes and educating myself, wanting to learn more about the fire service. Uh, two years on, uh, I was given the opportunity to promote to engineer, uh, which, you know, at the time was a very different structure, you know, where you would think of an engineer as a 
uh, a chauffeur or a driver operator at that time, it was just an additional promotable position. And so as an engineer, I ended up essentially being a, a company officer at my own station Oh wow! Uh, with two people. But I had two years on the job, uh, very unpopular. I was terrible at my job. I sucked by my own admission. Just not uh, a so good driver. I was very young. <laughs> Which, yeah, I which, wish I was driving. Well, I let me ask you, I which, been a lot better at that. Yeah, which part of that role was tough for you? Because it sounds the, like you were thrust in more of, a, more of a lieutenant role it, than... It was, yeah. For me, for, for practical purposes, it was like a company officer role or a yeah. lieutenant role. And um, that, that's just because of the wonky rank structure back then. But um, yeah, I was really, really bad at it. Um, <laughs> you know, so I was very young and I want... I really wanted to prove myself. I, you know, I had a lot of people saying I shouldn't have been promoted, uh, that I was promoted too early. And I let those outside voices influence how I directed folks. And I didn't have any formal leadership training. So uh, I resorted to the only leadership style I was familiar with or had seen. And that was very, you know, authoritarian. You right? went, like you went military, army model. You, I went on me, right? Like, yeah. you will do this. Um, and I failed miserably. But I felt like so many eyes were on me and waiting on me to fail and waiting on me to screw up that I was leading out of fear more than I was leading out of my own confidence or abilities. Mm. And so we had, um, it, it's so stupid now, I like to think back on it. Um, <laughs> but so we had an incident on, it was Christmas Eve. And there was a local amphitheater that used to run a um, like a winter wonderland. And they had a stage that they would convert into an ice skating rink in Florida. <laughs> right. Like the silliest thing I've ever heard. Can of anybody in, in Florida even ice skate? I can, but it's because I used to rollerblade. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's all the transplants. Right. Yes, yeah. There's tons <laughs> of people in Florida that can. Um, so we get a call. We get, we show up. It's a cardiac arrest on the ice. Um, and we get there and the crews are, you know, doing exactly what they think they're supposed to be doing. They're very much dialed in. And one of the guys goes and hooks the AED pads up. And I'm like staring at the fact that we're all in a slosh of water. Mm. And I just, I look at my driver. I'm like, Hey Cody, let's lift them up and get them off the ice. Like, just like that. And he kind of stopped and looked around and he goes, Hey, good call. And so we got them off the ice. And I remember that vividly because it was like one of those first set of circumstances where I'm like, okay. And they both looked at me like, oh, he does kind of know what he's doing. <laughs> like we would have gotten ourselves in trouble. That's supposed to, like, that's what he's there to do. Right. Uh, and so slowly but surely, I, I, I learned really quickly that it was more about influencing others to get them to do what I need to do as opposed to telling them mm-hmm. that that's what I need them to do. And so like now when I tell the story and I'm talking to young company officers, I tell them, I go, you got to develop this chameleon style of leadership, right? You've got to learn what makes people tick and you've got to learn to craft messages and around what they're into, what, what do they value? Like what's important to them, right? right? If you, if you know what makes them tick and what motivates them, what values they have, then you can, you can influence them to get them to do what you need, what needs to be done. Um, so yeah, felt really confident towards the tail end of that. I did that for about three years. Um, 
then another op promotional opportunity came around. I was promoted to lieutenant, um, moved out of the downtown station, got to mentor underneath the captain. That was the first time I felt like I was really growing because I had more one-on-one -on -one mentorship. Right. And, uh, but everything that I went through the first time in terms of like perception, what people thought of me, um, I had, I had to relive all of that all over again. Mm. You know, I was like, no, no confidence in me. I got promoted too early. I wasn't ready for this position. Uh, you know, the chief at the time liked me and that's why I got promoted. So I had to do a lot of that all over again. Um, so I do that for about three more years. Uh, then I become a captain. And at that time, when I made captain, it was the first time that I felt like I didn't have to reprove myself all over again. Right. That there was a little bit of, there was enough of it, not that there weren't, not that there weren't naysayers or doubters, but it wasn't as profound as, as the first time. So I was a captain for about two years. Um, and then in 2014, um, I find out that I'm getting deployed and going back to Afghanistan. And so that kind of rocked uh, my world to say the least. Um, I was already going through uh, a fairly dark time in my life. I had kind of regressed on some mental health issues. Um, you know, my marriage wasn't as strong as I wish it would have been. And I did a lot of things where, uh, I had a lot of, a lot of things I regret doing in that time frame, And I was really being driven and motivated by guilt. Hmm. So, and I'll, I'll explain, I guess a little bit was, so, do, um, do you feel like a lot of this was like when you were young and you had that first initial exposure that, did you ever get any real intervention or therapeutic help at that time? No. Nothing. So a lot of this, I'm sure. So I'm saying from my own experience, you probably were carrying yeah. a lot of this with you, right? Yes. Right. So I, for uh, over a decade, I lived under the principle of, um, avoid and override. Yeah. Um, so when the deployment came up in 2014, uh, I was running from my personal life and really being driven by guilt. Hmm. So the, the friend that I lost in Arthur, was his name um lost him in 2004 and he was with the 351st mp company in ocala florida well this is the unit that i was in okay uh, we were the same rank and there was a really big part of me that felt compelled to go on that mission and finish it for him and i should never have been allowed on that deployment um, but I was running from my personal life, running from my marriage. Yeah. My wife was pregnant with our third kid at the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and just so people, not, people nothing know, that I'm describing now sounds like well, fire chief material. Well, let me but, just say this though. The, there's nothing stressful about having the third child. Like, come on. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, come on. Um, like there's a lot. Yeah. I just want to highlight the fact that life goes yeah. on and we take on ever more you're a captain at this point you've got a third child on the way there's so that adds a lot of pressure and i'm making i'm making light you know by making a joke about yeah. that but but it's real and and sometimes we have a tendency to forget the amount of pressure that gets that we take on as we grow up right. and you know and grow into life so 
Yeah, and so you talk about fire chief material, but I'm going to let that sit for a minute because we'll we'll come back to that. But <laughs> mm, um, yeah, so um, yeah, I mean, it was a mess. That deployment was awful, really stressful. Uh, you know, had a really significant event towards the tail end of it where we had a mass casualty incident and um, I really started to lose it towards the tail end of that trip Yeah, and came home in absolute shambles. Um, I immediately came back to work upon returning because I didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. Um, shouldn't have been allowed back to work. Uh, I wasn't living at home at the time with my wife or kids. Um, I didn't feel like I was the type of person that should be around kids at the moment. And the only place I felt work was or safe was at work because I felt like I had a safety net of folks around me. But I remember, you know, going to a medical call in the middle of the night and freezing up and saying, I, I'm, I'm going to stay right here. Like I'm not getting out of the truck mm-hmm. and the guys would just cover for me. Right. Like they, they really would. And like, so, and I talk a lot about that now and I share that experience to talk about, you know, the, the culture of enabling and that, that sometimes in the fire service, the, the brotherhood and camaraderie could, could really the fine line between covering for somebody and enabling them at times can be razor thin that I, I think I really was acting out with the hopes that somebody would intervene. Mm-hmm. It was, it was more a cry for help. Yeah. Um, my wife, to her credit, I, I don't never really gave up on me. And, uh, I just, I hit a low, the lowest of lows and, you know, we're, we meet up somewhere and start talking and, you know, she's just like, you're just not you. Like I look at you and I don't know who you are. And I just remember, you know, crying and breaking down in front of her and telling her, like, I don't know who I am. And, you know, but I'm broken. Like, I feel broken. I don't know how to, how else to put that. Yeah. And uh, she said something to me that will forever and ever and ever stick out in my mind. Um, And it's that a broken crayon can still color. And I felt like, huh, like the simplest of things, but it hit me in a way that I really needed at the moment. Um, So the following week, I go to the VA. I start getting a ton of help. I think at its peak, um, I was going to a, a group VA counseling session once a week. I was doing individual counseling. Uh, once or twice a week and we started going to marriage counseling uh, once or twice a week like if I wasn't at work I was guaranteed to have multiple appointments uh, with somebody yeah and really felt like I started to put the pieces back together and having been through that and having experienced that really I think has given me a very clean perspective from, from a leadership perspective of how many things I wish I had done different and that maybe I was meant to go through it to better sympathize with the firefighters that are struggling with this. Yeah. Um, but to grow personally and professionally too. Um, 
So then I get the worst news ever. And my fire chief calls and tells me that he's retiring. And this, just, is the chief, this is the chief that hired you on? No, this is a different chief. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I mean, I'm like heartbroken because I had always dreamed of being in that position. Um, I was really hoping for some more time. Hmm. And, but, you know, you take the opportunities when they come up. And I sat down, um, you know, went through the process and, and I was selected to be the fire chief. But all of those negative experiences that I felt the first couple of times I got promoted all came back. Mm. And there was a faction of the organization that did not want me because by my own admission, I was, I was horrible. Like the, the two years before that, I was a terrible person. Um, and I, but it wasn't me, mm. I guess to, yeah. is the big thing. And, but I mean, I, I had one firefighter come up to me the night that we're doing a farewell dinner for the outgoing chief. And he's like, Hey, can I talk to you real quick? And I'm like, yeah, no problem. Like we're outside the venue where this is happening. Right. And he just looked at me and he's like, I don't want you to be the fire chief. Like, I don't think you're worthy of that. And I, I just looked at him and I just said, Hey man, like, you're right. Like you're completely justified in feeling the way that you do. I go, but in, I feel like I can do this. And all I'm asking for is an opportunity to, to be the chief that you guys deserve. Right. It's like, if I can win my family back, if I can win my wife back, if I can get my life back together, I can, I can win you guys back. I know that I can. Yeah. All I need is an opportunity. If six months from now you feel the same way that you do, then do a vote of no confidence and get me out. But all I'm asking for is the opportunity. And I told myself that night that I, I will continue to come here and to, to be the chief that, that they deserve. So um, it is not a conventional route to becoming a fire chief. Yeah. I will tell you that. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like, you know, you, you, you came off the heels of a, of a pretty rough period, but a healing period. And, you know, I, I would never wish anyone to go through that type of trauma to grow, but you know, that's a, there's an interesting dynamic in that, in that growth cycle, right? And the, the maturity that comes with that trial and the, and the, the humility that it takes to go and, and sit in front of a therapist and say, and bear it all and expose yourself. Um, there's a tremendous amount of growth that can come from that. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've done most of my growth in this seat, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah. Um, well, so let me ask you, you a question know, real quick. So he, he said, I don't think you're worthy. What, what do you think he meant by that word, worthy? I mean, I mean deserving, right? That I okay. wasn't living, you know, that the, I think the position really comes with a tremendous amount of credibility in it by itself. Right. Right, that there's a, a tremendous presence that comes with that title Mm. um and then i think you just instantly associate that with a with a caliber of person that would lead others right i didn't i don't think i was in a position where i hadn't led myself for a good portion of that time now granted 
where I was during that moment or that conversation was so far from where I was, you know, at the lowest point of it. Right. That, I mean, I was, I felt like trending in the right direction, but you know, I own every bad thing I've ever said or done to anybody. Yeah. Um, but that my driving force was never about me, that it was about them, that it was the organization. And I'm such a massive proponent of stewardship. And I've only learned to appreciate that more now than, than ever before. Um, but the same way that I didn't want to let that first fire chief down when he took a chance on me, I like I will never let this city or its firefighters down for taking the chance on me and for rallying around me yeah. when 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 you know when when the time came. Yeah, you said that you would you know give me the opportunity to earn your trust, and so how did you? What are some of the things that you did? Some of the big things that you deliberately did to go out there and you know earn the trust. I and... felt like I had to prove myself all over again. Yeah. Um, I always felt like I, this department's amazing. I have forever seen so much talent within the organization. I just didn't feel like it was being utilized to its fullest potential. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I did not take long for me to be put, uh, to the test, honestly. Oh, I bet, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was, uh, I don't know, six weeks on the job, three, four, something like that. It was in my first month. When um, Hurricane Matthew hit St. Augustine, and we were really the epicenter of that, uh, we hadn't experienced a storm like that in decades. There wasn't any institutional knowledge, you know, within the hierarchy. And so the way that it works here for our city is I also double as the emergency management coordinator. Lucky. And so I'm a month into this trying to cut my teeth into this job. Yeah, You know, and so the rank structure for the city changes where the city manager remains at the top, sort of as the chief um, executive officer. Mm -hmm. And then I elevate to the number two position as the chief operating officer. And so I've got public works and all of the other departments now answering to me as as an operations person Mm. saying, this is how we're running this incident. This is what we're going to do these are our plans and the department hadn't been through an event like that in not in my time at all there you know so there was no internal institutional knowledge or experience to build off of but a lot of my previous experience and i treated it like a mission right like the same way you know that we would do troop leading procedures in the military right okay start outlining objectives. These are things that we need to do. This is what I want you to focus on. These are the plans that we're going to put into effect. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to really be that person in front of all of them in a moment of crisis, where if I wasn't going to be good at the job, I wouldn't have been. And I, my tenure as chief would have been over six weeks into it. Right. And the, the outcome of that by very little of what I had to do with but the way that they conducted themselves and the way that we pulled together as an organization, like it was amazing. You know, there were so many people afterwards that were like, man, you, you crushed it. Like we had, nobody had ever been through anything like this. And if you were going to fail, like it, it would have been, 
then. And it, it was that culminating event that I needed for the rest of the organization to say, Hey, get on board. Okay. Yeah. He, he can do it. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Right. And so the first, I think the first year for any chief is an absolute blur. And mine was because we got hit with a second hurricane 11 months later. And so like I, we had, we were federally declared as a disaster area, 11 Mm. months apart, all within my first year as chief. Wow. And so if I was, if I was going to fail, it it would have been in that year and the exact opposite happened. I gained the community's trust for the, the organization grew in terms of its credibility within the organization for how they conducted themselves during those events. Um, and within other departments in the city where they're like, man, the fire department like did has done more in this past year than we've seen or heard from them in a while. And, you know, I don't want anyone to have to go through that (laughs) in order to earn that, but but that's where we were. And, uh, well, you prove you're able to prove your metal. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's okay. And I'm, I'm grateful for having had that opportunity now. And we've flooded so many times since then with storms <laughs> that have come by, they all think it's my fault and they might be right. I might be the black <laughs> cloud on that one. Um, you know, but it's, it's to the point now where if we had one coming today and I were out of the country for whatever reason, I wouldn't lose an ounce of sleep. Like they're so well-trained proficient now. They know the game plans. We've refined them over time um, that they would absolutely crush it with little to no direction. Right. What an amazing, what an amazing entry into the world of being a fire chief. And it was great in (laughs) hindsight. I'm telling, I wouldn't, I, it was the best thing that ever could have happened to me. I needed it. I needed it to gain confidence in myself, um, you know, to, to, to know that I could do it. Um, and I tried really, really hard during those first two storms to set the tone that I was there to take care of them. Right. That that was my primary focus. Right. So like, as soon as the storm starts to calm down, I'm like, you know, Hey, if you need to go home to check on your homes, like, I want you to be able to go do that and then just come back to work and we'll keep working. Make sure your families are okay we did conference calls with families in case that they had questions and it was a vastly different experience, right? Where I really wanted to try to tell them like, look, please look out for your people, take care of them, do rest work cycles because they're so amped up and wound tight that they're ready to just hit the ground running and go do work. It's like, nope, you need to remove yourself from the stressful situation from time to time. And um, I have evolved over the years that, to be hyper-focused on taking care of them for their own well-being. Yeah. Because I think we do get sucked into the mission at times. Yeah. Well, I, I had a fire chief tell me that his two, the two things he asked himself, this is a Terry Garrison. Um, he said the two things that he asked himself when making a decision is, how will this affect my firefighters and how will it affect mm-hmm. Mrs. Smith? If it's not a, yeah. you know, or he, I think he said, is it good? Is it good for my firefighters? Is it good for Mrs. Smith? And if the question is no to either one of those, we're not doing it. Yep. And if the question is yes, you know, or positive, it's a positive thing. It's going to be good for our firefighters and good for Mrs. Smith. Then let's look at it. And I think that's yeah. a, a fundamental kind of a, a, a baseline to approaching all these problems, right? If you're not, if you can't take care of your firefighters, they can't 
handle the mission if they they're not. Yeah, that's it, right? Like at its simplest, at our at our core, for as fire chiefs, right? If we take care of them. It is going to free them up to take care of their citizens, and taking care of them means a lot of things. Right. What is right? so? What does that mean to you when you think about that kind of broadly? So I would tell you, like my leadership perspective has changed immensely over the years, and that I consider myself more of a shepherd now than anything else, Hmm. right? That my objective with you, the day that you get hired, is for you to, A, live to your fullest potential, do what you want to do, and be happy doing it. If you don't feel like this organization is going to provide you what you're truly capable of doing, then you should go seek that opportunity out, and I will help you. I want you to achieve what you want to achieve in life. I want you to be financially secure at the end of it, right? So we should be involved in labor negotiations because we want them to have a livelihood. You'll do it for the love of the job, but it's nice when you can do it for the love of the job and, you know, feel secure in in doing it, hopefully to the point where you're not having to work two or three jobs just to maintain it, right? I want you to be happy, like just live free, live happy, live long, be healthy. At the tail end of your career, you should leave here feeling like you made a difference grateful for the opportunities that you had financially secure and fulfilled in what you wanted to do. Mm. Right. And our job as leaders is to get you from point A to point B. And I pray that at point B, like at your, at your finish line, that you're every bit as in love with the job today as you were when you started. I tell people all the time, like my tagline on social media is never stop loving it. (laughs) Don't ever stop loving it. That all throughout your career, you will find people that will take joy out of extinguishing the flame within you that makes you love what it is that you do, Mm. right? Don't ever allow yourself to be sucked into that group of people. Always find ways to reignite that flame, to keep that passion alive. If you do that, 25 or 30 years in this job will fly by in a heartbeat and you will leave happy, healthy, and fulfilled. If you don't, it's going to feel like a prison sentence to you. Yeah. You are going to hate coming to work, and I don't want anybody to hate coming to work or not really love what they do. I love, I love it more now as the chief than I ever did riding backwards. Is that right? It's how, an how entirely come? different level of perspective and appreciation because I'm zoomed out. Hmm. You know, so like as if you're, you're on an engine company, you're riding backwards, or you're in some other seat within that company. You take a tremendous amount of pride in what you do individually or what your truck does individually. Mm-hmm. You know, now I love to, A, I will tell you, so moving to shift work or moving out of shift work onto a regular, you know, schedule allows you the opportunity to really appreciate the fact that there is so much talent within your organization that you don't see because you're siloed in your shift work. Right. You know what I mean? And that, you probably formed an opinion of somebody else that you've never worked with because of something that somebody else told you never because you've seen their entire body of work. Um, so now it's a different level of appreciation. Watching the organization grow, watching people grow is the most rewarding thing ever. Watching somebody, you know, exceed what your expectations of them were, or just really knock your socks off watching this well-oiled machine, operate on a fire ground where these guys show up jump off of trucks and know instinctively what to do Mm. like these guys could fight a fire without a chief out front they know what needs to be done they're very proficient at what they do um 
And it's, it's a really, so from an administrator's perspective, right? When your training program, your budget and your training program, your budget and your core values all should complement each other. And when you do that and everything works in harmony, right? It's a different cog on the wheel. All right. What's our culture? Our culture is we want to be an aggressive, well-trained fire department. Awesome. I mean, so that's our culture. We're, that's the, that's the machine that we're going to feed. Well then administratively, I want to make sure that the policies align with that objective. And then budgetarily, I want to do what I need to do to help support that as well. Right. So then all of a sudden your policies, the culture, your training program, and your budget are all working towards the same goal to produce these amazing firefighters that have the equipment and the training and the resources that they need to go out there and really get the job done for people. And not just to do the job, but to do it and to leave a positive impression on that customer's face, right? Like, right. man, the guys came in and they did all this work and it's that attention to detail or that care. Like, they went in and, and covered up all the furniture or they immediately started collecting pictures or they did this extra thing to take care of my pet or like those small acts that when somebody is at their absolute worst, when they've had the worst day of their life, that they can go in there and do something small for them in their time of need, that those, those small acts not only represent them as individuals or the city or the fire department, but the fire service as a whole. Yeah. Like it's a powerful, powerful thing. I get an immense amount of satisfaction out of watching really small decisions that we'd make administratively pay off on the fire grounds. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. So it's really, it's really cool because when I think about the role of a fire chief and, and you're articulating it very well, which is this idea of understanding the, the 60,000 foot view and saying, you know, and then what are all the levers you can pull to make the mission successful? And it's, it's yep. super complex, um, but there's so many different things, little nuances and things that you can, that you can um, engage with to create the outcome, the aggregate outcome. And to me, that's a really, it's, it's you know, as I've grown up in the organization and, and, and gained some, a little bit of elevation and perspective, learn to appreciate and um, and learn to to realize that you know your ability as a fire chief to serve the community is vicariously through the through the troops, right? Mm -hmm. And your job is to support them in the mission, give them the tools, the training, and the you know the the supervision and pro and and provisions of policy to help them be successful. Um, that's it. And that's a what a really neat. Uh, well, it's it's just a great perspective. I love it. It's awesome. You know, so we sat down as an organization um, a few years ago. And I, I've been, I had been meaning to do it and putting it off for a while. I was like, no, you know what? Like I, I just kind of came in one day on the fly. I didn't even plan on doing it. And I just pulled everybody into a room and I said, Hey, our mission statement stinks. It's <laughs> awful. I hate it. You know, I go, and you guys probably, you, I know you don't know it and that's okay. I go, but I really want to simplify it. And I want something that really, truly like defines who we are and why we're here. You know what I mean? So like, so what's our job? Like, what is it that we're here to do? And, and I did the same exact meeting with every shift and got everybody involved in the process. And then I was like, talk to me about your core values. Like, what's important to you? What are our values as an organization? 
you know, so it's an exercise that everybody does. Yes. Or most departments do. Right. And, but man, out of that came the coolest mission statement ever. My and Carlos's humble opinion. Okay. Um, Wait, no, now you got to say it. it you got to tell us what it, it is. It, it, <laughs> all right. So everything is our job and every encounter matters. That at no point should you pass something that needs to be done that you see done and think to yourself, oh, that's not my job. Right. You know, everything, you are a public servant. That Everything is your job. And that embodies what the fire service is. We are the community's problem solvers that over the course of the fire service's career, every time a new and complex, you know, threat emerges on the populace and nobody knows who to hand that problem to, the fire service has always been the one to stand up and say, send me, mm-hmm. right? I will do that. That's, that's how we got into hazmat. You know, we're doing it now with Asher events. Like the mission continues to grow and creep in a way where when people don't know who to call for an issue, they call us. Miami-Dade has a darn snake team. <laughs> like that's a threat down in Miami. Like they have an entire team of people within Fire Rescue devoted to snakes, anything that crawls, snakes, crocs, all that stuff. They have like a venom team. Like that's because that's an emerging threat down in South right, Florida, invasive right. species, and all of these things. It's like, who could have seen that? Write that into an IFSTA book, right? You know, but that, <laughs> but they've developed a whole team out of it, right? And it's like, it's not even enough that they did it. They were like super proud of it, and they love it, and they're really, really good at it, right? So it's like it's something that's amazing. Um, so, so yeah, everything is our job, and every encounter matters. I'm a, I'm a massive proponent of stewardship. Yeah. And I tell people that all the time, like, you don't understand, like, but you it, being in the fire service is a privilege. It, it truly is. It's not a right. It's, it's, I mean, you get the opportunity to be in this time honored profession. And the only reason that you get to do it is because somebody before you didn't let it fail. Hmm. Somebody before you fought to keep what job you're in right now or somebody before you fought to expand the department so that you had the opportunity to do this for a living right and so in our organization we were an organization when i when i told you when we got hired we got hired because a whole shift of folks left right right and so there then there were talks of us consolidating and merging into another agency and like we've been around since like the mid 1800s the nation's oldest city right you know, like, and I tell people that the, the only reason that we have a fire department today is because people fought to keep it years ago, right? That while you're here, your job is to be a steward of it. It's your department right now. You drive it the way that you think it needs to be driven. Leave it in the best possible shape that you can, because inevitably you got to hand it off to somebody else. Right. But the journey's going to end. But for the time that you have it, for the time that you own it, you take care of it, honor it, respect it, and leave it better than you found it. I love that. The here's a so here's a question that is in my mind that, that I want to push back a little bit on. When we talk about everything, and this is you know to to your guys' mission, everything is our job. Um, right. The the crux of that for me, or the struggle I have with that, is we there there's a mandate from the community and the question is is mm-hmm. at what point are we um 
we are all things to all people and 911 becomes, you know, we become handymen in the middle of the night as well, right? And you, know, yep. you see this occasionally. And so where does customer service and and the ability to provide emergency service, the the there's a breakover point where we're not providing our primary mission, right? Or we're straining right. the system so hard. So I guess I guess I kind of I have an answer to my own question, I guess, which is we have to be able to support that mandate. We do. So if the community, if the community wants to call us to change batteries in a smoke detector in the middle of the night, okay, but we have to have the capacity in the system to properly yes. do that without without breaking the system and not being able to fulfill our primary mission and be. I, I know I agree with that, right? Yeah. But that goes back to that desire to want them to be happy, fulfilled, and not. Yeah, like our job shouldn't be to beat them into the ground. And I think what, right. what becomes really difficult, and we're seeing that now more than ever, is there are so many challenges hitting the fire service at the same exact time that, yeah, there is an onus of, hey, maybe we need to throttle back on some of these, you know, non-emergency calls. You know, if it's coming at the cost of your membership, yeah, by all means. Right. But that's where we need to be communicating those needs to folks. Right. Right. And mm -hmm. the hope is that, are you capitalizing on those good deeds or good acts? Right. So I remember after one of the storms that we had, you know, I've got the entire department like rallied around us. And I told them, I said, listen, because it was fairly like we had a good lull period. We did all the preparatory stuff. We did a bunch of work during response. And then we were just resting and waiting for daylight because that's when we knew we were going to go out there and, and hit it. Mm. And I remember telling them, I said, listen, all right, so this is where you earn your keep. Okay. It should be a competition of who comes back here with the most positive feedback from, from residents. Like if you mm -hmm. see some, I want you out. I want you in your, in the streets, windows down. If you see somebody that needs help with something, just stop. I don't need you out there for 12 hours. I want you to be visible and if you see somebody in need get out of your trucks help them do something like this is where you earn your keep this yeah. is where you are allowed to make a massive investment in the organization's credibility savings account mm -hmm. right because mm -hmm. the deposits that you make into that credibility savings account today we're going to cash in in the future right if we have to go before a commission or council and say, look, I need, I need 12 more firefighters to open a new station, right? We want the public's reaction to that to be if the 12 firefighters that they're going to hire are like the guys that got out and helped me when I needed help with this, then yes, absolutely. Right. I want 12 more of those guys and gals out in the streets of St. Augustine. Right. It's a, but so I, I think that that is a part of it, that somewhere along the line, we get so busy that we stop sharing these small acts that truly set agencies apart from other yeah. people. There are so many amazing things being done on a daily basis right. and so many extra things that I think guys and gals do when somebody needs help that for the most part, the public never knows about that sharing those stories it lends itself to credibility, but, but managing that scope of work in today's fire service is paramount. I, yeah. I do agree with you on that. Yeah. And that's, it's a, it's a tricky balance 
because you've got to be a good steward of the community's yep. fiscal piece, right? But at the same time, we have to provide the right level of support, right? Which requires yep. hiring people and providing apparatus and fire stations, et cetera. And, That's you know, right. and if you don't have good, positive political capital, then you're mm-hmm. not going to get the support you need, and it's going to be a death spiral, right? I'm being right. You know, melodramatic, but it's it becomes very difficult to provide that, you know, provide your primary mission, let alone be able to even provide quality customer service. It just becomes an insidious it does. Uh, cancer. It does. I mean, and then sometimes, look, mm-hmm. you, agencies will suffer from credibility injuries. Right, right. Right? Yep. You know, so the same way that one good act makes everybody look good, one bad act makes the entire organization look bad yeah well and frankly you know and it, yeah it'll it'll dot the eye of the entire fire service yeah 100 percent. So it's not local we have all y'all hear about mm-hmm. it so when we so we talk we're talking about political capital and and then we talk about like in our own agencies and i want to pivot just a just a tiny bit and talk about some of the stuff that you're doing in the uh the Florida Fire Chiefs Association and how you guys are kind of reaching out a little broadly at some kind of topics that are that are affecting the entire fire service, right? And and one of the things that you and I touched on was sort of the this you know the younger generation. I'm throwing up air quotes over here that you can't see, but the younger generation yeah. <laughs> and and what that looks like and and what their needs are and how you guys are addressing that. I really love what you guys are starting to do and and the data yeah, collection you're doing. They're the future of the fire service. So uh, somewhere someone's rolling their eyes going, no, they're not. But um, <laughs> yeah, yes, they are. They are the future of the fire service. Love it or, or hate it. They absolutely are. And uh, I'm, I am trying to tell people to embrace the change. I think it, it, it's needed. And my hope is that the fire service is better for it. So, um, so yes, I'm a board member for the Florida Fire Chiefs Association. And then I chair the uh, Florida Firefighters and Standard, the Standards and Employment Council through the division of the State Fire Marshal's Office. Uh, I've been on the council for a couple of years. Last year, I was asked to chair it. And one of the things that we continue to hear from chiefs all across the state is, hey, is somebody going to do something about retention or recruitment? I can't find people. Or, you know, and it, it really started... Uh, in more rural parts of the state and has, you know, really spread like wildfire. You know, South Florida is very different. The state's very diverse. Mm. Um, If you've been to Florida, I mean, you've got the panhandle is for the most part very rural unless you're in Tallahassee or along the coast. Um, Northeast Florida, you know, has one large metro and then a couple of suburb or suburban communities, but it's fairly rural inland. Then you've got a ton of density along I-4 and then south of I-4, it is what we say resource rich with the exception of the very center of the state. Um, so um, we really embarked on this. We were hearing it from everywhere except the South Florida departments. They're like, no, we're not seeing an issue with recruitment or retention. We've got tons of folks that that monster is starting to kind of show itself down there. Now it's like now we're a little bit over a year and a half into this. And so what we did is um, in conjunction with the Florida fire chiefs association, and the Bureau of Fire Standards and Training, uh, we held a workforce caucus uh, at the State Fire College in Ocala, Florida, and invited a handful of departments. What we did is we worked to make sure that uh, we got them regionally. So I got a couple from the Southwest, a couple from the Southeast. I got a few from the central part of the state, a couple from the Northeast where we are, 
and then some folks out from the panhandle. And we said, we want you to send us junior firefighters. We specifically want to target firefighters under five years of service because this is the demographic that we want to target. This is, I mean, for the most part, most of them Gen Z, right? This mm-hmm. is this is the future of the workforce. And we wanted to identify what is working? What are the problems with recruitment? And what are some of the potential solutions? And then what are the problems with retention? And what are some of those potential solutions? Can we get a list of best practices, things that work, things that don't work? What are the barriers preventing people from, you know, what are the barriers preventing more people from wanting to get into this? Right. And then we started a draft of a white paper. We wanted to do a second caucus later that year. And we did uh, with a larger sample size. Um, which is where I met Lindsay. We now have a mutual friend. Yes. Uh, yeah. And what up, Lindsay? Uh, I know you're listening. Yep. Uh, yeah. She's amazing. <laughs> Just absolutely amazing. I, and, I totally agree. Um, yeah. So the information that we got out of it was amazing. And, you know, the nerd in me, because I like data, mm-hmm. I've like, done a whole deep dive into, into demography and demographics and what does the future of the workforce look like? So, but there was a lot that we got out of that. You know, um, we have yet to find anybody that felt like a hiring bonus was an attractant to the job. Hmm. You know, yeah. But so it's not. So it's not just about money. It's not just about money. Money's important. Yep. You know, right? To all my locals out there. Yep. Totally. Uh, I mean, it is for sure. It it is. It's a part of the benefits package. It does. I'm not at all suggesting that it should be ignored. Right. Because we want them to be fulfilled while they're working with us. So it is a a very important part of the process. But that in terms of attracting them to the job, you know, if the difference was this department has a hiring bonus and this one doesn't, it didn't really seem to make a difference with the folks that that we caucused or or spoke with. Um, That we talked a lot about the entry barriers, things like needing to pay your way through school. And we're seeing more and more departments now in the state sort of backing off of that mandate and beginning to budget money to send people to school in order to reduce one of those barriers. Um, some, a lot of them talked about firehouse culture and it being a very intimidating um, environment for them. But uh, overwhelmingly, the work-life balance was a big, big deal. Mm-hmm. All right, the, the means of Mando and mandatory overtimes are a real concern. But then there were other things that were really eye-opening to us that continued to come up. The, the, the lack of feeling valued or involved within the organization was a big deal. Yes. Right? Like, so they're like, no, like, we feel like we're doing all of these good things, but like, no one's telling anybody. Right. You know, like, right. we don't, we feel like a, we feel like a person. We don't feel like we're a valued member of the team. And that's where I think a lot of this has to do just with demographics and a changing or shifting population of the fire service. Um, so the work-life balance is a really, I mean, they value that maybe more so than they do, um, you know, the total compensation package. Right. So they're okay. It's not that they're not willing to work. And I, I don't like that stereotype from people. Um, it really and truly, I believe that they are willing to work and that there's a drive for them to want to do this, but there's just a, a willing, there's, there's a, there's a ceiling, there's a cap to what they're willing to go through. 
Right. And we've got to be understanding of that. Uh, the retention, I will tell you right now, anybody listening, I don't care what department you are with, if you are having a retention problem, I encourage you to really look inward at your own organization. Mm-hmm. That retention is everyone's responsibility. Yeah. Okay. If you are up there upset at a union meeting saying, what is my chief doing for retention? What are you doing for retention? We love to use data and analytics in the fire service to tell us where a new fire station should go, or, you know, do we need to add a rescue unit in this zone? Take that same energy and focus it inward, right? Do an internal audit of your own organization and say, is there a specific station or a specific company officer that just seems to be burning through people? Or is there a battalion that seems to have a way better retention rate than others? There's, there is probably something working really well in that battalion or in that station or in that firehouse that we as leaders should be looking at and saying, hey, but we're not doing that internal audit, right? We're just, no, we just need to put a butt in a seat. It seems to be the model of everybody. And I understand that. Like I will 100% sympathize with chiefs in that regard. Right. So, but here's the trickle down effect. So here's, here's the, the evolution of bad morale in a department. People are tired of being mandatory for overtime. Chiefs post and try to hire somebody. Maybe there aren't a ton of great applicants. So the options are I hire this person and fill the gap so that I don't have to mandatory people, or I sit back and wait for the right person to come through the door. And more often than not, they're just choosing to hire those people that come through the door. So then the perception on the street becomes, man, we've really lowered our hiring standards or we'll hire anybody, but they have to understand that it's just this vicious cycle. The applicant pool out there right now doesn't exist. And so that is where this caucus or um, workforce study really led us to do a statewide survey. We're like, everybody says it's bad, but like, how bad is it? Nobody had to compile the data yet. So we sent a survey out to departments all across the state, had just over half of them respond, which was good because the, you know, of the half that responded, we think we captured, you know, three quarters of the paid professional departments within the state. We don't have a ton of volunteers. And so what it told us is there's about 1500 vacancies statewide right now in open firefighter positions. Hmm. And then we looked further and said, uh, well, how many folks do you have in the drop plan that are getting ready to go? That number was at about 2,500. Wow. Right? So I'm like, well, shoot, that's 4,000 firefighters right there. It's like, hey, so just out of curiosity, because Florida's booming, we had a ton of people move here over the last three to five years. Um, what are your future expansion needs? Like, how many stations do you plan to open? What do you need in the next five years? And that number came in at around 4,000. So all of a sudden now we're zooming out going, hold, hold on a second. Like we need six, 6,000 firefighters and, you know, we've got 1500 vacancies right now. Well, we're only certifying right at about 2,000, 2,300 a year. And some of those just aren't hireable. They wouldn't pass a background or, right. you know, for one reason or another, they're just, you know, they're not going to be employable within the system. Um, so it's not really 2,400, it's a little bit closer to 2,000 or 1,800. And so you, what my suspicions are and where we've kind of landed on this 
is that it is it's possible if not probable that the problems are really likely to persist and get worse over the next few years federally the unemployment level remains relatively low and so that's what led me to look at demography and demographics so like i want to know more about gen z because gen z is the future of the workforce right yeah. they're gen z's they're you know eight uh, right now about 11 to 25 or 26 depending on what chart you look at you know so you're mm-hmm. 18 to 25 year olds like these should be our target demographic these should yeah. be the people we're targeting for a career in the fire service what makes gen z tick Right. Because this is the generation that's under assault by the fire service. This is what everybody says. Right. Um, you know, these guys don't want to work. They don't want to do this. They don't want to do that. They're more than willing to do it. But there are some, uh, you know, characteristics that that did really stand out to us. Um, so so I'm, I'm a big, you know, data nerd, like I said. So Gen Z are Gen Xers kids. OK, so you're mm-hmm. Gen Xers mm-hmm. uh, 34 to, or what is it? I don't know. It's about 34. Uh, 44 to like 58, like around in that age group right now. Uh, so Gen X is one of the smallest generations we've had in the last hundred years. They're just not a large generation. Uh, the millennials are baby boomers kids and millennials are the largest generation we have had since the baby boomers. But millennials are in that 27 to 40, 40 or 42 range, somewhere in there. Um, so they're a large demographic. But, but Gen Z is relatively smaller. So small generation leads, breeds a small generation. Right. Um, we also have seen a 20% drop in the birth rate in this country since 2006. Right? So one in five kids, you know, or one in five families isn't having kids compared right. to the same exact time frame. So what that's telling me is like, well, there's just, there's less of these young people to go around, right? That the workforce pool isn't mm-hmm. going to be large and robust the way that we think it's going to be. We've enjoyed boomers in the workforce, which were a very large demographic and now millennials in the workforce, which is a large demographic. And so the workforce is slightly shrinking. It's going to be fine in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, because millennials were a large generation. They should have more kids. But we're a ways off from that, you know, conceivably <laughs> like 10 to 12 years away from that. Like, right. Who's going to wait for that? And so for me, um, you know, retention really becomes the name of the game, keeping right. people satisfied and fulfilled at work. So, uh, you know, there's a study that was done by the by McKinsey and Company, a, a research firm. And so they said that 51% of Gen Z workers prefer independent work in their career fields, Mm. right? So this is the generation truly that grew up with tablets and smartphones, their, their entire existence, right? Um, They are very comfortable coding or in a, in an office that doesn't require a tremendous amount of interpersonal interaction um, or communication. And I know that folks in the firehouse see that today, right? Like these, they're, they're not coming in the door with the interpersonal communication skill set and the fire service culture or a firehouse culture may be a very intimidating place for them you know depending on the individual so they're not likely to feel like they can be their true selves in the fire service Um, they're also the y generation right not the letter y but like w h y y y 
they need that why. They want to know why you do things the way that you do it. Why is it important? Why do I need to learn this? And my generation was never brought up to question the why. Right. So that's the army in me. Hey, you go stand in that. Hey, here's a rifle. Okay. You go over that hill. You kill anybody that doesn't look like you. Okay. Nobody ever thought to ask why. Well, if you did, you'd you be know, told but to the, you but know, the, shut your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, sir. Or yes, Sergeant. And you go charge that hill. But, um, you know, today they need that. And so their entire lives, they've had their devices in their hands. If they had a question to anything, they could Google it. Right. Right. So they got the why. And that's a part of what makes them tick. And so where I relate that back to the fire service is there's a lot of us that are ingrained into doing things the way that we have do them have done them. Right. So the fire service has grown immensely in the last you know 40 years and the mission has grown kind of back to where we were talking about at the start of this. Right. But has 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 management grown. Right. Are we leading the same way we were leading 20 years ago? And my perception is, for the most part, yes. And and we need to get back to cultivating cultures of mentorship. Yeah. And I, I we need company officers to be company officers. We need them to be teachers and mentors. And they have to cultivate a culture and climate where it's okay to ask questions and encourage that and don't belittle people. And that doesn't mean that the fire service is getting soft. Like, I get that. At the end of the day, you want your firefighters to be tactically and technically proficient. Right. You can do that. They can be that person. You can develop them into phenomenal aggressive firefighters. It's just about the path that you take to get there. That's what I believe needs to be changed. This generation needs it more than any other. And then people say, well, they don't want to work. No, they respect a work-life balance. And then what do right. we tell them when they come into the door? Like, you got to take care of yourself. You had to have a good work-life balance. And then we're upset when we run them into the ground and they want to go. Right. So, right? Because we mandatory them. So retention to me really becomes important. So you bring up a really good point. There are two, two pieces I want to touch on. And, and one is this idea of work-life balance, right? We, in our recruiting, at least this has been my experience, and I, I'm, I imagine you'll echo this, part of the pitch has been, work 10 days a month and have all this time off and be able to spend time with your family. And we expect you to be physically fit and eat healthy and live a good, you know, live, uh, right. live a balanced life. And yet then, and, and now, you know, we do, we bait is a bait and switch. So now, now we're saying, Oh, and you're going to, you're going to get a kick doors and fight a lot of fire and run a little bit of EMS. Uh, no, yeah, no, you're, <laughs> at, balance your, you're of at your work. third nursing home call. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, this is total bullshit. You did, this is not the job you told me it was going to be. And so we right. talk about retention. Folks are like, yeah, you, this is not the job you promised. And I'm not getting to do the work I dreamed of. Um, and then the other piece you mentioned, which I think is really important too, is this idea that this next generation isn't what we were. And I have a problem with that because Who's responsible for helping those folks develop into the firefighters that we want them to be? It's our yeah, job. Yeah, we are. Right? It's the, yeah. it's the company officer's job. It's my job. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's your job. And that um, for us to sit here and just be mad at them um, is ridiculous because they're a product of our world that we all live in and benefit from. And so, uh, you know, we had a – I was talking to a friend the other day who was telling me about a firefighter who didn't know how to flood start a saw. And I'm like, yeah, 
I didn't know how to flood start a saw until I was taught how to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and that comes at a different point in our lives. And, yes. you know, and I, I will say I never, I, I worked, I worked construction a little bit after I got out of the Marine Corps, before I came on the fire service, I swung a hammer. I didn't do anything with saws. So I didn't know how to flood start a saw. I'd never had that opportunity. So yeah, did I come with a construction background? A tiny bit, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, but I came with a military background, so I guess that was my one advantage. But it is it is our obligation to lead these men and women where we need them to be, and to get them to yes. get develop their KSAs, right, their knowledge, skills, and abilities to the right level. Um. The last thing I wanted to ask is before I forget is is there a place where we can where we can share an address where someone can see that research and read it and and or maybe replicate it? So I I don't have it um, readily available uh, like a website or anything. So we're we're drafting a white paper now. Oh, okay. it's just about done. Where we're we're putting this information in there uh, as a part of it. We intend on actually presenting at the Florida Fire Chiefs Executive Development Conference, which will be in July in uh, Naples, Florida this year. And either right before that or at that time, we will basically publicize the paper um, and make it readily available to folks. You know, so very cool. I I, I believe that everybody is experiencing the same dilemma and having the same conversations and, and asking the same questions. So I see a lot of value in sharing that information. Um, I think it's a great opportunity. Yeah. Right. So every problem should present itself as a potential opportunity for something. And I, I think that it's here, right? Look inward for the solutions too. like, if you're having a hard time with recruitment um, and you're advertising on Facebook, you're, you're way behind. Like there's no way a new applicant's going to see, you know what I mean? Like it's that applicant's parents or grandparents like, Hey, look what I found. Like, please (laughs) apply. Like, right. Um, but I bet that you've got a handful of rookie firefighters that are very proficient at TikTok. Right. Right. Bring those folks into the fold. Hey, you want to be a part of something really cool? Like I want to, like, I'm going to develop a marketing team within the organization, give them guidelines, give them guide rails, right? Like, Hey, 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 here's, you're okay to operate in this space, right? Not carte blanche, like free, but man, you, I guarantee you there are people or organizations struggling to find people. And the ones that you need to recruit them are, are already in house. Yeah. Just, just as a a solution, Um, listen to their input. It is, it's, it's a different time, but like it or not, this is the future of the workforce. If you're waiting around for this next generation of folks that aren't going to ask why and are going to be less sensitive, you know, like it's never going to happen. You're going to find yourself going out of business or perpetually mandatorying everybody. Right. Right. But look at it. So, you know, at the beginning, like, I don't know, however long ago it was, 40 minutes ago, because we've been talking for a while now. <laughs> but like I talked about the ability to zoom out yep. and watch how one small decision affects everything else. Mm. So cultivate a climate of mentorship. Cultivate a climate where it's okay to ask questions. And then it's going to be somewhere where people want to be and they're going to feel comfortable and they're going to feel fulfilled. And then they're less likely to leave. And what are they going to do? How many people do you know 
that are in the fire service or got into the fire service because their buddy told them get into the fire service. It's awesome. It's the best job ever. Right. Right. Tons. And guess what? They're just not saying that now because it's not a comfortable environment for them. Right. But if you cultivate these climates, if you can change things, right, get off of the freaking target solutions and go out into the bay or out into the parking lot and pull stuff off of trucks, put your company officers out in front of people again, cultivate that climate where it's okay to ask questions that you're not going to get belittled. You're not going to get berated for teach people to do your job so that they're ready to step up to the next level. People will want to be at those departments. People will leave bad departments to want to go to those departments. You won't have the turnover. They will find friends and tell them you need to come work for the fire department. It's awesome. I've learned so much. I get to do so much great stuff. And I've learned a lot since I've been there. Mm. You can cultivate those climates. Now, all of a sudden, the mandatory things stop. Right. right? We can start to plug some of these gaps. We can we can patch the the holes where we're losing people left and right and really work on retaining workforce and invest in them and it's a heavy heavy lift by no stretch of the imagination am i sitting here thinking this is going to you're going to wave a magic wand and that this is going to be over tomorrow okay now the only other alternative if you want the bright side is you've got to hope for federal unemployment to go up to eight nine (laughs) percent tons of people to be laid off Okay. And then for really talented people to flock into the fire service for safe and stable employment. Yeah. But, you know, was it, uh, what was the New York, the training chief, Lee? Oh, Lee. You had on not long Yeah. Lee? Yeah. Frank yeah. Lieb. Right. Mm-hmm. Like hope is not a strategy. Right. Or luck is not a strategy. Luck is not a strategy. Like if you're going to, yeah. luck is not a strategy. If you just want to sit back and do nothing and hope and, you know, that you're going to get lucky and tons of people are going to enter the workforce right, in the future. Right. Hey, Go for it. Go. Good luck. Uh, and right. in the meantime, I'd be more than happy to send my application to your firefighters. Right. Right. Because we will <laughs> we will commit to doing it. We will commit to doing it differently. Yeah. My, I'm the city of St. Augustine. Will, I think our next four fire chiefs are already in the building. Mm. I stand by that. I, we are committed to succession planning, to developing future leaders. And it's a I mean, they're. There are people that you hire on day one thinking to yourself, man, like that guy could be a fire chief or that girl could be a fire chief in 15, 20 years. Hmm. Right? Well, like we're going to invest in them now. Treat them, train them well enough to where they could go out anywhere that they want to go yeah. and be ultra successful. Well, the word you used was invest. And I, I absolutely believe in that. You've got to invest in your people. And I will say yes. this, at every level of the organization, if you're a backseat yes. firefighter and you have a booter sitting next to you, invest in that booter. If you're a captain, yep. invest in your crew. If you're a battalion chief, on down the line. And you know that is so important. Um, it's just it's absolutely critical. You train them as if they're going to stay. Because if the yep. option, the other option is 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 you you, you train them and they leave. Okay, right. Well, or right. you don't. So, so train them well enough. Well, right? Or so that, so... you don't train them and they stay. And they stay. <laughs> And right? that's that is not good for your organization. It's terrible, right? So it's not I love that. You know, I've heard that. I used that when we did a presentation right. not long ago, right? And so it's um, but there was another one I saw recently where it's like, well, look, man, tra- train them well enough to where they could go out and be successful. Okay, yeah. uh, treat them well enough to where they reward oh, that with loyalty yes. and they never want to leave. I love it. Right, embrace that. Embrace that. Make the company officers 
leaders again, mm-hmm. cultivate that climate and the fire service is going to be fine. Right. I yeah. told somebody like not long ago, I'm, I want, I want a fire service that I want my son or daughter to join. Yeah. You know, if we can leave it, that's it's our, it's on us. This is the challenge that we have been presented. This is our generation's challenge. Okay. Return the fire service to what it used to be, make it better. Right. Envision a fire department that you want your son or daughter in, in 10 to 15 years. And what type of climate or culture would you want them to step into? And if everyone starts to, everyone starts to row that boat in the same direction, fire service is going to be fine. We're going to be great. We've never not been fine. You know, however long you've been, how long you've been on now? 25 years. 25. Man, God bless you. That's awesome. I love that. 25 (laughs) years ago though. Somebody said, if this guy's the future of the fire service, we're all doomed. Because I know they said it about me. And here we are. Here we are. It's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, hey, let me let me ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. Um, Let's do it. To pull us to a close. Um, what is what is one horrible recommendation you've been given? Or bad oh, piece of advice? Uh, God, I have two. Okay. We'll I take have them both. two, right? Okay, so one would be suck it up. <laughs> terrible advice um but the second is happy wife happy life mm. i think that's terrible advice See, well, you're gonna have to unpack you're gonna have to unpack that one so yep. unpack it. Uh, marriage is a partnership it's not about one person sacrificing everything you are an equal partner in that marriage your happiness in that relationship is just as important as hers if you strive to only make her happy you will be miserable Hmm. terrible advice amen brother all right what's the uh give me the converse what is a good piece of advice you've been given a broken crayon can still color oh that one actually yeah i'm gonna let that go because i love that it makes me choke up a little bit it's awesome uh i love you jen (laughs) i love my wife man she's amazing good jen thank you for that advice i i think it uh man that just resonates really deep for me and and i think for well, for clearly for you, Carlos, and for everybody else, that's really important advice. Yep. Um, Man, I will. I want to end just real quick. I mm-hmm. mean, to anybody out there that has ever believed in me or not given up on me, thank you. Mm. And I mean that. Like, I strive to just keep those folks satisfied and happy on a regular basis. And there's been plenty of people that would have had an excuse at one point or another to give up on me. I'm just so grateful or glad that they didn't yeah me too all right last question what does so the, the name of this podcast is fireground fitness so what does it mean to you to be fireground fit be well balanced it means that you you feed every one of your needs uh emotionally spiritually physically um that all of those things are every bit as important that you need to be well balanced to be successful. All right. I love it. Chief, thank you so much for being so vulnerable and willing to share your story and, and share your thoughts and ideas. Um, it's, it's an amazing, amazing story. And- I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, I got a little bit more raw than I was anticipated doing. Um, so hopefully, um, nobody tuned out 10 minutes into it and thought, why is this guy on the podcast? No, uh, and I no hope way, that you dude. got something out of it towards the end. 
but yeah, hey, I'm all in to make the fire service better. So I appreciate, Rain, everything that you're doing. I think the podcasts are fantastic. I think it's great that we are having these conversations and that you're able to have the reach that you have. It's great. Oh, I appreciate your kind words, Chief. Thank you. Hey, y'all. That's all we got for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Chief Avalas, for sharing your time and your talents with us. Hey, if you are enjoying this podcast, get on over to to uh, Apple Podcasts, rate and review the podcast. Go to whatever platform it is that you enjoy most, subscribe to the podcast, and I promise you, then it will drop in the middle of the night when you least expect it. That being said, take the lessons learned today. Find a way to bring them into your life. Apply them in your life so that tomorrow, the day after that, and the day after that, you are healthier more capable, more prepared for all that life throws at you. Going out there, y'all. Get some.